0: Peter and I'd like to welcome you to another Iron Golf Mine podcast. And today we've got the pleasure of speaking with Neil Craig. Neil is a 300 gamer uh, with uh, South Australian Football League and also a Hall of Famer, but more recently he's been known for his coaching and he's been involved with a number of clubs in the Australian Football League and is currently with Essendon Football Club. And one of the things that I want to talk to Neil about as we go along is his role and how he sees the development of coaches and what good coaches should have as far as traits go. Neil, welcome. Thanks, Bear, Good to be here. What I'd like to do to start with is there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this who are from countries other than Australia, and so they may or may not have heard of Australian football, but what I'd like to do is just get them to hear a little bit of your background and your story. How did you get involved with Australian football? Uh, Well, Australian football is obviously a national game in Australia, so
1: as a young kid in the country, Peter, I played, I started playing when I was about eight years of age, and had a great passion for it, and I still remember as a, I reckon I was about a nine or, about a ten or eleven year old, I remember nearly to the day where I made a commitment to myself that I was going to play at the highest level, and that was really something I wanted to do, gave me the energy to keep going and to to basically, back in those at that age to play basically just to play games at school and get a footy as much as you could. Anyway, I was able to do that and um, and play for a long period of time. Uh, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was an exceptional player, but I was able to, to stay in the game for probably up to around about 17 years as a player. As you said, play over 300 games, which is a lot in our sport. Mm. And I played right to the end. I was like a toothpaste you know when you get that last little bit out that was uh, uh, that was certainly my career the last game uh, I squeezed everything out I could because that was part of my mentality anyway yeah and then I was lucky enough to, uh, to be invited to, to coach to get involved in coaching I woke up one morning and I was a coach which was interesting in itself I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, but since, uh, and I've been sort of involved in the coaching probably for around about fifteen to twenty years as well. So it's uh, it's so the game of Australian rules has been fantastic to me.
0: And you've also done a lot of work in the sports science field too. So how has that influenced your coaching? Until I got
1: involved in coaching full time, sports science. Um, I actually trained, it, I trained professionally as a sports scientist, in particular sports, what they were called sports physiology, which is about the fitness of sports, you know, the conditioning and so forth. And I was lucky enough uh, during that time to spend 15 years of my life with the Australian Cycling Team, which whilst I was there as a sports scientist, in, in reflection it had a huge effect on my philosophy from a coaching perspective. Because I was able to travel the world with a guy called Charlie Walsh, when Charlie took over cycling, cycling on the international level, Australia was considered just a bit of a joke, laughing stock in the world. Uh, within four years, uh, it had become the number one nation in the world, so it went from being a laughing stock to a, a nation that was feared. Uh, I was actually sitting in that environment and it was a great cultural shift, change in that. Whilst I didn't know it at the time, it had a huge influence on um, my thinking as a coach What's important as a coach? How do you actually deliver a performance? Uh, just, just being involved with the sport as a sports scientist was great from a coaching perspective. In terms of coaching itself, the process of, of becoming a sports scientist helped me as a coach in the capacity to problem solve, to debate, to, to find answers to problems and sometimes to find answers to things that happen in the world that are right but science can't explain. Uh, it's like the bumblebee flies and it shouldn't. Science says it shouldn't but it does mm. and uh, it also makes a bit of honey on the side type. So it was it, it, it helped create my mind as a coach to use science to provide some of the answers you know, and to be open minded and uh, to continually improve to, to try and do things better. Being a sports scientist myself, when I would now work with sports science people it enables me to, to ask what I would consider appropriate coaching questions rather than just accept um, what someone's telling me to do or yeah. offering advice on that.
0: With that change in cycling from, from being well down the list to being the top of the list, you said that there were huge influences mm-hmm. over that period of time in terms of how it shaped your coaching philosophies. Yeah. What were those influences, the key ones?
1: Cycling in Australia, in my opinion, had pretty much bottomed out, and that's why That's why when I remember going to a world championship in, uh, in, in Stuttgart when we walked into the velodrome, you could nearly hear the rest of the world snigger mm. that here come the good-time Australians, you know. Uh, good people, great guys and, and girls to, to socialize with but in terms of them winning forget it mm-hmm. you know they might even sell you their bike at the end and you have a beer with them whatever they can't win whereas four years later you walk into a stadium uh, world championship and you can actually nearly smell the fear of, of, of Australia's here again mm-hmm. so you you know when you start the coach saying what was it that occurred that just doesn't happen overnight or for, right. for no reason in the end it was about leadership. It's about, in this case, Charlie Walsh, who had a very um, clear vision of how he wanted Australia to be perceived, and that's what I call a roadmap. Mm-hmm. Most people, when you talk to them, will say, yeah, we want to be the best in the world, or we want to be good. Very few of them know how to be good. And so what Charlie was able to provide was a vision of where we're going to go, but also uh, the question of this is and this is how we're going to do it. This is this is the roadmap of how we're going to get there. It's it gets back to uh, your capacity to assess the correct talent, because elite sport to be the best in the world uh, is not for everyone. To try and create an environment that is for everyone, I'm saying is wrong. So you need to really know what the culture looks like. Culture being just as a snapshot, about getting too detailed. And culture is just about well, how do you do things around here. it's about selection of talent it's about what I would call quality, so standards uh, standards of how you train standards of support staff um, standards of uh, technology um, those sorts of things it's about quality of training Um, everyone's got a different picture of what that might look like and once again that's where your your leaders become really important because you're relying on they set they set what that looks like, and so it's you know the absolute highest quality that you can give. they were in cycling with Charlie's program. It was a non-performance-enhancing drug program, and yet we were competing against nations uh, earlier on that actually were using performance-enhancing drugs. So we had to look outside the square. How are you going to compete with these people? So innovation, to be innovative, to have the courage to try new ideas became important. the The concept of of resilience is really important from a coaching perspective for athletes and for coaches to have this resilience, resilience because when you put yourself out there to be the best in the world, uh, you, you're going to you're going to be exposed to a lot of failure and a lot of hurdles to get over. If you haven't got the the uh, the concept, the characteristic of resilience, uh, you won't get there because you'll stop. You know, and your and your best your best athletes and your best coaches. Keep looking around the next corner, so they, they know what's coming and are able to handle it. And so they they do overcome all these these hurdles that are put up. It's a great filtering process, mm. you know. To be the best in the world, there's there's a great filtering process, and then these things are put in. A lot of the adversity, I believe, is put in front of you just to to really test: it. Have you got what it takes to be an elite, successful performer? Uh, so you just don't get there by by wishing about it. There's, you know there's a lot of, lot of A lot of uh, forks in the road that you've got
0: to get over. So the resilience idea is a really important one because, as you say, if you're looking to become the best in the world, the best in your field, then as you continually move up, you're moving up into a higher level of competitive space, whether that's with other coaches who are brilliant or other athletes who are different. Uh, And when you first move up into that space, the likelihood is you're not going to come out on top straight away until you develop. So, yes, you you are going to uh, face that that adversity so how do you go about training resilience it's really probably it's more about your mental i think your mental
1: process of how you view adversity it's it paralyzes some people so it stops them it doesn't allow them adversity or setback uh it doesn't allow them to to bounce back not. for me the best people who are able who they use it to their advantage they use adversity to their advantage because they see it as an opportunity if there's something that's that's happened that uh, has a, the capacity to stop them for a little period of time, or, or they've made an error of judgment, or mm. you know there's something going on that they can't actually get to the level they want, there's there's an opportunity in there for improvement, but you've got to have the right mental capacity to to see it. Otherwise, you just you know you, you become downtrodden all the time. You know, the, the Japanese have a, a saying called Kazan, you know, which is about continuing improvement. And they actually, they actually see adversity as, uh, or something going wrong, as a gold nugget. Ah, uh, we found, we found a defect here. And so that means, with this, here's a capacity, if we can actually take something from that defect and improve it, and so it's no longer a defect, we actually move forward and we improve it's, uh in in the cycling program, that was the attitude. You know, there's something going wrong, or a bad defeat, or lack of success. Is it was more an opportunity, it was a gold nugget to actually get more information about how to keep mm-hmm. moving forward. When I now talk to coaches, and particularly when I talk to uh, to AFL players, uh, I often talk to them about the capacity to, to see resilience in a really positive, to see adversity and the capacity to handle it as a really positive trait to have
0: as an elite performer. So very much reframing it from. Um, here's a stumbling block, can I ever get past it, to here's an opportunity, let's yeah. make Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, I call it the gold nugget, ah, mm. uh, I've failed here, I've temporarily failed, fantastic, because there'll be something here if I can actually find out why, why I've failed, and can I now put in a technique or an intervention to actually overcome it,
0: mm.
1: like I'm going to be better, t- I'm going to be better today than I was yesterday, mm. and that's how people move forward. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How would you define success?
1: For me, success is knowing that you've done everything possible with the circumstances that you've created, that you've squeezed everything out of yourself. Mm. To be the ultimate success, if you like, in most people's eyes, is about a scoreboard because they see a gold medal or a premiership or winning a major in golf, you know, is the ultimate. But if that's your only measure... It's going to be a pretty downtrodden life, isn't it?
0: Well, especially with something like golf where you have 140 players in the field each week. Yeah. There is, is one a success and 150 yeah. like a failure?
1: So it's a really interesting question that you ask. Once again, you know, my own coaching and, and dealing with athletes, question that should be asked, you know, what does, what does realistic success look like in your eyes, mm. whether it be an organisation uh, or whether it be an individual athlete and once you actually start to answer that questions, school board is is more often not part of it but it's probably only about maybe five percent of it you know it's about your capacity to continually improve to build these resilient skills, how you affect other people can you drag other you know the development of leadership you know all those human being characteristics so and it's an important question, and it's important to get a vision in your head of what does look like. As I said, it can be a very, uh, you know, downtrodden life for the lead athlete if you don't know what that really looks like.
0: So success is really more of a mindset. It's not, it's not a um, necessarily an objective measure, but it's a, it's about how you go about your business. Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's about how you go exactly how you, how you actually go about your business, how you uh, the, your your levels, standards of training. How you treat other people, are uh, you improving? And from a technical point of view, it can be just you know the, the whole package of what an elite performance looks like is um, you know are you are you incorporating those and are you moving forward? Mm. You know, are you continually to move forward? Now you may not get to the ultimate because not everyone can be the best in the world. Um, I understand that, but are you continually to improve? To me, is is, is in, as a snapshot. Is, is success.
0: Yeah. Especially in a coaching situation because you have an obligation to the athletes that oh, you work yeah. with, regardless of whether they're someone who's a, a weekend warrior, yeah. or an aspiring world champion. Oh, there's yeah. still that there's still that obligation to them to to deliver as much as well as you can. Yeah. It's a good so once you get into a coaching
1: position, you're you're in a leadership position whether you like it or not. And there, once you're in a leadership position, of course, well then uh, I can say to you, well, you're responsible. So, if you're coaching golfers, which you are, you have a responsibility to either the weekend warrior or to a, you know, to a player that wants to go on the international circuit and, and try to be the best he possibly can mm. and be successful. And therefore, you you have an obligation to be the best you can as a coach to better take that person on the journey. So, if you're coaching me, Peter. Uh, I have an expectation of you as a coach and, and my expectation would be I want you to be the best possible coach that you can be and if my performance stagnates for a period of time um, my commitment to you will be oh, I'm, I'm going to put the time in I'm up for the challenge but I'm going to need some help here and if it's stagnated I want you to go and try and find another way to get me going again and that might be a new technique that you learn it might be something you've read you go and talked to other people you might get another resource in to help you, but in the end, your responsibility is to keep me moving forward. And I think that's a really thing I push with the coaches I work with, is it's a sense of responsibility to the athlete. And you must never, ever give up on them.
0: It's, it's interesting about that sense of responsibility because the conversation that I've had with other golf coaches and, and other coaches is that the question will pop up, and fairly regularly, with uh, with an athlete, again, doesn't matter what level they are, that, you know, am I missing something here? Is there something I can be doing better? You know, is this athlete moving forward as quickly as I expected they would? So yeah. there's that constant self-check. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, because that is, that's what leadership's about. You, you're taking, you have a response, I use the word responsibility, accountability, even though it's slightly different, but. To, to take this person on some form of journey with you, a positive, a positive journey. And of course, the great coaches, ones I've been, the great coaches I've been exposed to in a range of sports, they have this, uh, they have this sense of responsibility, but they have a great deg- degree of what I call humility as well. And when you have humility, it's a, it's a value that enables you to understand that you can always improve, and therefore you will be prepared to look under any. Rock around any corner, you know, to, to seek advice, information. The only the only criteria I put around that is within the rules of the sport, not to go outside the rules of the sport. But that's that's a, that's about integrity. Yes. Um, the capacity to be humble as a coach enables you to be the best possible coach you can, because that means that you are prepared to to improve. The coaches that lack humility are the ones that stand still. And I would never want to be coached by a coach that lacks humility. And I would never, and I would never allow my daughter or son to be coached by a coach that lacks humility because they won't improve.
0: There's a lot of work that's been done around growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Yeah, fixed mindset is pretty much in that situation that the, the uh, we'll say the non-humble coach who thinks they know it all, it. versus the coach that is more humble may look at that other coach and say well you know there must be so much better but the end result is usually that the coach that's continually looking continually learning continually innovating as as much as they can within the rules. Mm. they're a better coach anyway
1: always and you would you expect them, that coach to feel good about themselves um, but he's, he or she is growing uh, and therefore they have a mind you you call it a growth mindset which is exactly what it is, because they actually want to grow as a person, as a coach, and therefore they're prepared to learn. Yeah. The, the learning aspect's really quite scary, because as older you get, the longer you've been in coaching, you sort of sometimes feel like, well, was, maybe I'm coming to an end point here, and then you read something, or you get, uh, you get into a, a slightly different environment, and you think, God, I wish I'd known that three years ago, mm. and yet it's probably existed for a long time. So... There's always a way to get better, yes. and that's one of the exciting things of elite sport, of course, yeah. is there's always a better way of doing things.
0: One of the things that I, I want to touch on, it's actually something that we talked about before we began the podcast, and that's the difference between a high-performance environment and a high-performing environment. Coaching's about action, and it's about doing things, and I know that your preference is to talk about what you do in your, your current role with Essendon Football Club as being and creating and developing a high-performing environment. Yeah. So how do you see the difference between... Or, or what is a high-performing environment and how does that differ from a high-performance environment? Well, if I, if I use AFL as an
1: example, probably every... not probably... Every every AFL club would now say they've actually got a high-performance. On the playing side of the footy club, they'd say this is, this is a high-performance environment. and mm. um, They might say that because of... Uh, the structure of the environment, the, uh, the facilities that they have and you know, some of these clubs are now building 30 million dollar facilities you know, bricks and mortar and recovery and indoor training and, uh, so they talk about facilities, equipment, they talk about technology they, uh, they talk about no, we've, got, we've just gone out and recruited the, you know, the three best coaches in the land and so, they, and they put them in this in the environment. So we've now got a high performance environment.
0: So that's about infrastructure. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, what happens, of course, is that just because you've you've got the facility, technology, and, and quality people, it doesn't mean that you get quality action. In actual fact, you can have you can have a high performance environment that's dysfunctional because of, and my experience tells me, Peter, that it's either because of egos. That people think that they can't work with other people, and it's all about them first, or it's about lack of clarity about what you and I, suppose, should be doing, or it's about lack of trust on a day-to-day basis. Not not trust in the in the in the in the context that you're going to pinch my lunch money, but trust is that if I say something to you, or we have like there's not, there's a need for me to have a uh, a tough conversation with you because your behaviour is affecting performance. Um, that you, you think that it becomes personal or you use it against me or whatever. And it's, it's often the fact that uh, work environments can't have these tough conversations is why it becomes dysfunctional. Mm. Now, does it still operate? Yes, it does because it, uh, the doors open next day, and it's, whether it be a company or, or, or an AFL footy club, the season goes on or the next day goes on. Uh, So it still operates, but you're talking about if I'm an athlete in that environment, I need to know, or I want to know, am I maximising my performance here? Am I in an environment where I can maximise performance? And if you're in a dysfunctional environment, the answer to that will be no. Mm. Now, sometimes in the corporate world, and I can only talk from afar here, because they may be onto a product that is so good sometimes their operating environment doesn't have to be any good but I was, I was, I was reading an, an article the other day it was, it, was a, it was a case study where the company had done really well financially, bottom line was fantastic and yet the board of that company uh, dismissed the CEO at the end of the, the, operate, the financial year because the way he had got the result was totally against the values of the company mm. to me that's a functional operating environment there uh, is that they know clearly about what makes people really good, what makes a, a functional environment, and yet you've got to see, oh, even though he was getting a good scoreboard, the number of people that were leaving the company was, you know, was growing, had a bad reputation in the industry. It was just the fact that their product was so good mm. that uh, it camouflaged a lot about, you know, being a, a functional environment. So huge difference huge difference between a high-performance environment versus a high-performing environment. And in the end it's about leadership.
0: The leadership qualities that are required for a high-performing environment, what do they look like on the ground? If you're, if you're observing that, is, is it observable? Yeah, it is. I mean, you should if, if you came to the Essendon Footy Club
1: for two weeks and spent two weeks at the Essendon Footy Club I, I know that you would be able to then describe to me about what the culture of Essendon is at the the current time. And you would, in the end, you would probably talk to people about how we do things at Essendon, but I'll guarantee you, in the end, your opinion will be based on what you see happens, not what people say to you,
0: Mm.
1: okay? Which is this action-based concept again. And so you'll you'll look at behaviours, you look at behaviours that are tolerated versus behaviours that are pulled up on. You look at conversa- you'll be able You'll better hear what conversations are being had and what action comes from those conversations. And uh, there are so many environments where, if you walk in, they'll see you'll, you'll see trademarks up on the wall, words up on the wall, uh, all great words. Uh, but your capacity, the real challenge is: do people who work in that environment do they actually live these values? Yes. I would say in the majority of cases the answer to that question is no, Mm -hmm. but in your best environments they do, the best environments they do, and people are held accountable for Mm behaviours. Whether you're the CEO or whether you're uh, a first year employee, there's an expectation that that's that's how we live, that's how we conduct our business, that's that's how we do things around here. Uh, If you see people acting outside of those, you have a responsibility. To challenge. Part of your culture is, though, you've got to feel safe in challenging. Okay? And if you haven't got that uh, security, you won't challenge, and therefore that's when your culture starts to
0: disintegrate. So, one of those values clearly is trust. The other thing you oh, said cool. is that if I was to observe the club for two weeks, what I would see is uh, a snapshot of the culture as it is now, which yeah. implies that it's, it's continually evolving. So that, that means that if, it's to be, if the culture is uh, of a set, certain set of standards regarding values and trust and all those sorts of things, it needs to be continually worked on. Yeah, it does. It needs to be
1: absolute, there needs to be absolute clarity. And someone's got to set those values and standards. My belief is that your leaders of the organisation need to, uh, need to drive those standards, what they might look like, and part of driving it, though, is if you're an employee of, say, the Essendon Footy Club, I also actually, if, if I'm one of the leaders there, I actually want to know what you think are, are, are the appropriate standards. I don't, want, I don't want suffering obedience. I can tell you what the standard will be, but you might sit there and say, well, yeah, that's what Neil said. Uh, I don't, don't really believe in it, but, you know, he's paying my way, so I'll, I'll make out that I'll, I'll fall in the line. You don't want suffering obedience in a high-performing environment. So I actually want to know, I actually want your input so you actually feel part of it, so that uh, you might not always get what you want, but at least you have been involved in it. So you get what that commonly term is called buy-in from from all your staff and and players.
0: Now, once you get that,
1: the next thing is to have absolute clarity about what it looks like. And then my responsibility of a leader is to make sure that I live those standards first and foremost because people will look at me about what I do. And if I can't live them, or be challenged if I I deviate from them, uh, you've got no hope about the rest of the people in your organisation. But then to to have this environment where people know what the standards and behaviours will look like, and if there's a deviation from those standards, there is a conversation and feedback given, and if that that feedback continues over a period of time because you're not meeting standards, well, there's there's a consequence for that for you, Peter is that this environment may not be for you even if you might be our top player or our, our best salesman this environment's not for you doesn't mean that another environment isn't for you but it won't be this one and that's when you've got a really powerful organisation
0: and so a lot of uh, coaches and they may be they may already be senior coaches who are, who are listening to us or they may be those who are in the early stages of their journey if they're looking to become the best coach they can possibly be, in other words, you know, ongoing successful coach, uh, by our definition, not by the scoreboard definition, what are the things that that they need to look inside of themselves for? Yeah. Well, they once you get
1: into that position, they'll need to have, and I'm really strong on this. If I was employing you for a senior role in an AFL club, as a senior coach, there's a couple of key things that I want to know about you. Uh, I mean your competence, I'll give you a tip of competence, otherwise you wouldn't to be sitting here on the end of you mm. have competence as in from a technical point of view, game plans, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying yeah, that's, a, that, that's not, I want you to probably talk to you about that. What I will talk to you about, though, is I actually want to know what your philosophy is. When I want to know what your philosophy is, I want to know, and that's a whole range of issues that, that, that uh, can happen in a, in a work environment. Mm. So I don't necessarily want to know what offense or defense I want to know what your philosophy is um, in terms of player discipline, you know, your own leadership, the picture you've got in leadership. I want to know what your value system is. I want to know uh, what your relationships going to be with the media. All these different day-to-day issues, but you need to... If you you haven't thought about that and you're going to jump all over the place as they occur, that will be the environment you create. Mm. I'm looking for someone in a leadership position that is very clear on their philosophy in a whole range of areas. doesn't mean you won't change it, but at the moment you're crystal clear. So you can say, no, this is what I would do here. And it will be based on your value system. Because when I ask you what you're going to do, I'm asking you to make a decision. And you will make a decision on your value system. Um, and if your value system is all over the place, and well, you don't have a value, that's, that's what your decision will look like. Okay? Your best leaders are very clear on their philosophy. And the other thing I want to know is how you actually react under adversity, under stress. Because in the, in the high-performance sporting environment, you, you're going to be exposed to stress big time because of the, the responsibility that you have. And in AFL football, it's magnified again because it's, it's so public. Everything that senior coaches do is very public. It's in a public arena. And therefore, everyone has an opinion on it. On your decision that you make, and if you're not clear on your decision about why you made it, what will happen is that you'll often jump from the last person you heard that you know what what you, they, they think you should have done. And I think that's why a lot of young coaches get themselves in a little bit of trouble, mm. particularly if they haven't got a good in, a good support system around them. Is that they're still forming this 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 philosophy about why they why they will make this 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 decision
0: this type of decision. Mm. That's excellent advice, and there are you know so many great opportunities through coaching. It doesn't matter whether it's for um, you know junior athletes or very senior athletes. Some of the challenges are similar, but as you say, some of them are more in the public arena.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, people often say to me, you know, oh, once you get to the AFL level, you know, it's all different. It's not. It's not different. The issues at AFL and AFL environment. Faces as a senior coach or coaching, a lot of them are no different to what you would face in a country club. Mm. You're dealing with people. You know, I have a throwaway line. The only difference between AFL and country footy is about four zeros Mm. of what you pay people and the the crowd numbers you get and whatever. But in terms, you're still dealing with human beings. So if I'm dealing with an under fourteen, you know, an under fourteen team, uh, I'm I'm going to probably at some stage have to deal with parents. About selection or non-selection of their son or daughter, or poor behaviour of their son or daughter. So I'm going to need to know what you know, how I'm going to handle that and how I'm going to relate to to those sort of things. So it's uh, you, that's why I'm saying your capacity to have very clear philosophy about why you do things uh, is really important, which you you get from the way you've grown up, the, the environment you've been exposed to, observation of. Uh, I'm a great believer in uh, you know success leaves great clues so look at successful coaches look at successful environments you know particularly environments that have been successful for long periods of time successful coaches that have been successful for long periods of time not not one or two years because they haven't, they haven't been exposed to a whole range of things the guys, the guys and the teams and, and the environments that have been successful for long, long periods of time look at what they do and you'll see some common trends that, that are always there As you know, it's been
0: trends that have stood to test the test of time over over the years. That's excellent. Neil, thanks very much. The, the chat was really interesting in that we can talk about coaches and we could probably go on for hours. But, it, but the, the traits that we see with, as you just said, junior coaches and senior coaches, that they're all much the same, but the coaches are pretty clear on you know what they want and clear on their philosophies and values, and that's a great place for any coach to start. It is, Peter, and uh, it—you
1: know—it's not easy. It sounds easy just talking about it, maybe listening to this, this conversation. But once you get your, the real learning effect, is when you're in the, when you're in the position of of a senior coach and leadership, and you have to make a decision, uh, you'll make it. And the most important time after you've made it is what I call reflective time—to sit back and say, I've now made that decision. Uh, what was the consequence or effect of it? And hopefully, most times it'll be no. That's what I wanted to happen. But there'll be times when you thought, when you when you realise that, that was a poor decision, you know. And some of my best learning times as a senior coach was when I made a decision, and in reflection, there were some things that occurred, what I call the ripple effect that I didn't consider. And you think, God, I wish I had known about that. But that's that's what experience. That's why I'm saying, look at the look at the coaches that have been successful for long periods of time, because they wouldn't survive. If they hadn't had a, if they if they don't have a clear philosophy, so we can maybe talk about that in part B of this session. <laughs> thanks for your time. Okay, thanks, Peter.